enjoying the beautiful weather this weekend. As we wrap up our series today uh, called Greater Love, the unbelievable story of our rescue, we want to think back to the couple of things that we've done in the last few weeks and what God has been leading us through in Scripture. And I also want to say some things about where we're going in the months to come as we uh, continue to, we'll open up a new series next week in the book of Ephesians and what we're going to do with that. So first of all, uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at how God's greater love uh, tackles some of these big problems in our lives, some of the real things that we deal with, like our past, the hurt that we carry with us, our present, the irritations and frustrations that we feel with each other, our future, the anxieties and the fears that we may have of what's yet to come. And in each one of these messages, we've been talking about resurrection power. Because from Easter, when Jesus looked Mary Magdalene in, in the face, if you can remember back to what we did on Easter when we read about Mary on Easter morning, that Sunday morning, and she sees Jesus, she looks at Jesus, but she's not able to recognize him. And then he says to her, Mary. And in this moment, Mary Magdalene's eyes are open. She realizes she's speaking to her Lord. This person knows her intimately. In other words, what we could say now that we've spent a month working through this is that in that moment, Mary realizes this is the Lord who knows all of my past. He knows everything I'm going through right now. He knows all of my future. It's all in his hands. It means the worst thing that I could ever do or think he knew before he chose me. It means the worst thing that has ever happened to me, uh, the pain, the, the fear that's still in my life because of something somebody did to me in the past, he knows. He's carried these kind of pains and burdens too. He lived through all oh, the irritation of teaching the people, that even though they were stubborn, and the pain of the cross, and the fear of death, and the, the hurt from betrayal from Judas, his close friend. He's lived through all of these things. In this moment, he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, she realizes that he knows me. And you know what? In that moment, I want you to think about whether Mary would have agreed with this American value. There's an American value that says that there is nothing greater than independence. Okay? There is nothing greater than personal freedom. Do you think in that moment when Jesus looked her in the eye and he said, Mary, I know your past, I know your present, I know your future, I know everything about you and I accept you. I still love you in spite of everything that you've ever done. I still want you instead of, in spite of the weakness that you carry. I still love you in spite of the fears and the, that you're a little hesitant to give yourself completely to me. Jesus says this to Mary, I completely choose you, Mary. Do you think that at that moment Mary would have said, well, it's far better for me to, to remain independent than to give myself over to you? Do you think that Mary would have said at that moment when she had been longing for Jesus, her heart was longing for him, she was weeping tears of anguish that he was gone, and she would look at him and she'd say, you know, actually in this moment I realize it would be better for me not to have a Lord. It would be better for me not to have a God, not to have a master. Can you imagine that response from Mary? Can you put yourself in the place where somebody has come looking for you, where somebody has been seeking you out, where they've cried your tears, they've carried your burdens, they accept you just as you are, and then you say to them, you know, I really think, I really think that having this kind of a friend is a trap. I would rather be completely independent than to be given over to you. 
or then to serve you, Jesus, or to love you, husband or wife, or to, you know, stick with you, parents, or whoever it might be. Do you really, can you imagine Mary choosing complete autonomy over Jesus in that moment? Because I can't picture it. In that moment, Mary is willing to serve the God who appeared, who loved her, who chose her, who knew her. And so we've got this problem that we're going to look at this morning, and it's a problem about absolute freedom. And it ties into all of these three things that we've looked at, but it's a problem that has to do with absolute freedom. And here's a lie. There's a lie that is told to you, and it goes like this, that you can be free from all masters. Do you hear the lie? That you can be free from all masters. And so the first thing we're going to do today is we're going to look at how you can never be free from all masters. There is no such thing as the imagined complete autonomy in life. Instead, true freedom isn't pure independence, but it's finding the best master. True freedom is finding the one who loves you who leads you out of love, who knows and accepts your past, your present, and your future, who can help you learn to be competent in dealing with all of these things, who can help you to look at the band-aid that represents all of your past hurts and say, even with this, even carrying this, I can walk with this master. The God who helps you in the moments whenever you're just craving something in life and people won't give it to you. You're irritated because people are in your way or whatever it might be, and there's poison in your relationships poison that comes from the snake bite, that comes from that, from that lie of Satan that says, if only you had this, you would be happy, and you can't have it, so you're irritated. Jesus can be the master who drains that poison out of your irritations and your frustrations. In the moment when you feel like there's no options for your future, it's death on one side and death on the other, to die crushed by the Egyptians over here, or drowning in the sea on this side, and your fears of the future are so great, you think, there's no escape. This is the one master who says, I know an escape route. Will you follow me? And in that moment, independence is not what you need. Independence is not your friend. Independence in that moment is a lie from Satan. It's a lie from hell. What you need is the best master, the, mo the greatest, highest power that's ever been, the greatest, higher power that anyone's ever known is what you need in your life at that moment. And this is really what we're talking about today. That God's love is greater than our addictions. God's love is greater than the hooks that sin has in our hearts where we go back over and over and over to the same old crummy mistakes. And let's, let's take a moment here to think about this message. Just to think about the potential for it. Have you ever lived with an addiction? of any kind. Now, don't in your hearts, don't say no if it's just not been a chemical addiction. I want you to think about, do you have a pattern of sin? Do you have a longing, a craving that you come back to time and again? Have you ever prayed, even once in your life, the prayer, God, again I need to repent of? God, once again, will you release me from God, again, I need your salvation. You see, I want to approach this message with humility. I want us, I want all of myself and all of you, I want all of us to come to this moment with some humility. 
because there isn't any way that we can capture in one message this morning all of the truths about addiction. There's no way, is there, that we can capture all of the, all of the problems in the world about addiction in one message and just deal with it. So we've got to come with some humility. All of us have been here. All of us have been affected by someone in our life who continued to choose an addictive behavior. It might be you. All of us have lived through probably at least one person in your life or close friendship who does have a chemical dependence, who might have a, a dependence on pornography, uh, who maybe it has a dependence on some kind of behavior like a, a gambling addiction. All of us have been affected by something. And I want you to think about this morning with me this question, does God have hope for you in this? Does God have hope for our addictions? Can you be free of this master of addiction, this corrupt master that holds your heart? You see, sin is more than just simply an action. Sin is a power. Sin is not just a mistake that you choose in a moment. Sin is a a power that corrupts. Sin is an addictive power all on its own. Look at a scripture that we've looked at once together already, Numbers eleven four, and look at the power of sin. Not just the moment of it, not just the action of it, but look at the power of it. And let's look at this text with some humility and pleading with God in our hearts and our minds to be with us at this time. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Now, when did we look at this scripture together? Just two weeks ago, right? When we talked about irritations. The Israelites in the desert, and they no water, and there's no food, and they don't like the leadership, and they keep grumbling over and over. And look at these words again. The Israelites started wailing, and they said, if only we had meat to eat. Can you see that sin is a power? It's not just an action. Have the people even done an action yet? All they've done is, made it, is chosen a loyalty. See, all they've done is identified, in a sense, their master, their craving. Look at the words in yellow, if only. Do you know what these words mean? If only. What do these words reveal about the heart? If only. If only we had this meat to eat. Now finish the sentence. If only we had the meat to eat, then we would be. Finish it in your minds. If only we had the meat to eat, then we would be. Now, say it out loud, whatever word you finished it with in your minds. If only we had the meat to eat. If only then, then we would be? Yeah, happy, satisfied, joyful, content, right? If only. See, the master in the moment is this craving. These people have been released from slavery. The chains on their arms and their ankles have been broken off. They've walked through the sea. They've gone through this symbol of the cloud and the sea, of their baptism, you know, and the way that Paul did that in Corinthians last week was really neat for us to see. The shackles of slavery broken away. They are free people. They are independent people. They have won, now with God's power, they've won the birth of a new nation, and they believe that they have independence, and they are just glorying in their independence, but their independence owns them. Their direction, their personal direction is still aimless. And the only place that the arrow lands, the only place that their compass ever leads them is towards their craving. What I want in this moment. 
because I'm independent and free. And so truly, they're still, they're still slaves, aren't they? They've been set free from slavery in Egypt, but they're slaves to sin. This is where the terminology in Scripture about being spiritual slaves or slaves to sin comes from. In fact, here's a church word that we use very often in preaching and in Bible classes, the word redemption. The word redemption is a word that you probably just think it means, well, salvation. But the word redemption is a slavery word. It's a word of someone who was under ownership, and then they were bought. There was something paid to get their release, to get their freedom, to bring them, in other words, to a new master. They were bought with a price. And so these people, they have been given freedom from Egypt, but in their hearts they're still slaves. They're living under the old covenant. Now, they haven't even been given the law at Sinai yet, but what I mean by living under the old covenant is the covenant of works. The idea that, that they are completely autonomous, free individuals, and all they have to do is appease God through religion. All they've got to do is offer sacrifices or worship Him the right way, and so long as you just kind of do religion in the way that it appeases God, you're just free. You do what you want. You, you have righteousness. You just, you're Freedom comes from what you do, not from who you know, not from the loving dependence on God. And so they don't love God. They love themselves and they crave, if only we had meat to eat. And God says to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Now, we didn't look at this part two weeks ago, and this is why we're coming back to it. We skipped this part and we looked at how God gave uh, to help with the irritation in the moment, God gave more leaders. He put his spirit on elders of Israel to help carry the burden with Moses. But that's not the only way God responded to this craving. God says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now that's, I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Do you see the words there? Don't, don't read this fast. Don't be tempted to go over this too fast. Look at the words. We were better off in Egypt. Any sane and rational person would say, no, you weren't. They go, we had melons and cucumbers and leeks and all the fish we could eat for free. And Moses and, and the Lord must just be dumbfounded at this moment going, no, you weren't better off in Egypt. Of course you had fish for free. You were slaves. You didn't get paid anything. They gave you fish to keep you alive so you could keep building bricks without straw. You weren't free. You weren't better off. Like what kind of a person forgets how bad it was in Egypt? What kind of a person is so, and see this is the key, this is how you know they're slaves. They're owned by their craving. Their craving has lied to them. Their craving has told them, you were better off when this one craving was met in your life than you are now. And some of you, in the addictive patterns and cycles that we as humans go through, might experience this lie. You are better off when you were in that substance abuse. You were better off. At least then you had this one thing that you crave. You're better off when you were an alcoholic and you could just go drown it every night. 
you were better off whenever you could just run away to the casino on the weekend and just, you know, gamble and live it up. You were better off when you slept with anyone that you wanted. Because at least then you could indulge the craving, personal freedom, right? You could do what you wanted. And the people show that they're spiritual slaves because they believe this lie. You were better off. And God says you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five days or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. How many of you as a kid ever got too excited about drinking a Coke or you weren't supposed to have one, so you started guzzling it down, and then it came out your nostrils. You coughed it out. Now, if that isn't a lesson for you that Coke isn't a good thing to put in your body, it burns, doesn't it? It's embarrassing. It burns when the Coke comes out of your nose, and here comes the meat. God's using this picture to say you're going to loathe the thing that you craved. The thing that you thought would make you happy, you'll see how happy it has potential to make you. How happy can it make you? And he says, you'll loathe it because you've rejected the Lord who's among you. And I want you to, if you're taking notes in your Bible or on your bulletin or something, just write down or circle those words, loathe and rejected. They're really important here. They're really important. They're not, they're not the same word in the original language or in English. They're two different words, but they mean the same thing. They mean the same thing. They mean you have despised God. In your craving, you rejected the Lord. You said, he won't be our master. We'd rather go back to Egypt and have them be our masters because they gave us fish. And so you've rejected him, but what I'm going to help you to do is I'm going to teach you to reject your craving. I'm going to teach you to loathe the thing that you craved until it comes out your nose because you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? And now a wind went out from the Lord and it drove quail in from the sea. And it scattered them up to three feet deep all around the camp. One version says they were flying all around the ground up to three feet high. Uh, some of the versions, it makes it sound like the quails just died and were piled up. I don't know, but you know, three feet deep, something like this. Can you imagine that many birds? Uh, all around the camp, and as far as a day's walk in any direction. Now, how far can you walk in a day? A couple miles? Yeah, you're, I mean, you're Americans. You're used to driving, right? These people could walk 20 to 30 miles in a day. So you think about how far we're talking. We're talking three feet deep of quail, uh, a day's walk, maybe Fayetteville, definitely uh, most of the way to, you know, Neosho or something like that, halfway up there. I mean, you're talking a vast amount of the desert covered in quail. And all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered the quail. And I just, I want you reading between the lines with me here a little bit. Anybody who's ever seen addiction, who's ever felt its hooks in your heart, again, speaking with humility, not out of shame, not out of condemnation, because all of us have been there or been affected by this, but what is it like when we are in the middle of our craving? What is it like when you're in the middle of this thing that you want more than anything else at the moment? You would sell your grandmother for it. What is it like? You can't stop all day long, all night long, all the next day, right? It owns you. It's your master. And look at the people. So much fear that they'll never have quail to eat again that they gather it 24 hours or more straight. No one gathered less than 10 homers. 
Okay, now a homer is a biblical measurement. A homer is approximately 58 gallons. A homer is about the size of a large industrial trash bag. Ever seen these? How many of you have carried one of these out of the lodge on Wednesday night after the meal? Oh, you didn't know that was a ministry you were allowed to participate in, did you? (laughs) You certainly are. And can you imagine, you know, one of these guys when it's full of Wednesday night trash from that delicious free meal that we're given? And it's packed to the top and it's tied off right at the top and it's just near to bursting, right? With plates and cups and you don't you certainly don't want to drag it on anything so that it doesn't leak on you, right? Well, this is about fifty-five 56 gallons or so. Okay, this is about a biblical homer. And it says every person collected, not a homer, how many homers? Ten homers. Now, I thought it would be really funny if then I had ten more trash bags, but let's be honest, we got to move on. So you get the idea. Ten of those. Ten trash cans full. Ten industrial-sized barrels full. Ten, those big barrels of oil full per person How many people are in your family? How many people are in a family where they don't have any kind of prevention? How many people are in a family where every time that it's the right time that they have they get pregnant again? How many how many kids were in your grandparents' family? Right? Before they used protection all the time? Ten? Twelve? How big is an Israelite family? And every person, 12 of them, 15 of them, grandma and grandpa, are going out and getting not one but 10 trash cans full of quail and bringing them back around their tent. And their tent is already situated in a place where the quail are stacked up three feet deep for 20 miles in every direction. You guys, it's mountains of quail. It would make the guys at Benton County, you know, Quails Unlimited, just jealous. Their hearts would just burst. So much quail. And we don't get it because 10 homers is nonsense to us. And whatever that measurement that was that I converted to three feet is nonsense to us. But while the meat was still in their teeth, before it could even be consumed, before they could eat it all, because how could you eat it all? It would take, it would take months to eat all that much meat. The anger of the Lord burned against the people. You see, he was trying to show them something. There is no end to your craving. If you rely on your own freedom, there is no end in sight. You rely purely on your independence and you think you can satisfy your craving by indulging it. You think in the American way of thinking that by doing whatever you want, by having no morals, no boundaries, just no limits at all, just pure freedom, undiluted personal autonomy, that you can quench that thirst. You cannot. You will pile up the rotting meat all around your house and still want to eat it. And so God strikes them with this severe plague, and therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatava because they buried the people who had craved other food. And that word, kibroth hatava, simply means the graves of craving. God says, you were the ones who escaped the sea. 
You escaped drowning in the Red Sea when your back was against it and the army was about to slaughter you, but you still died in your craving. It's buried you. It's become your master. And you see, the cycle of addiction that we're talking about isn't, isn't really a huge secret to us, but the story helps us illustrate it and understand it. It always starts with some distress. Addiction usually comes from the very things that we've been talking about all month long. A hurt from the past can be your distress. The frustration of your current life setting. Fears of your future. It doesn't matter what the stress is. We all, remember earlier I said we needed humility because we all live so close to addiction. We've all been in it. We've all been touched by it. We all live so close to it because sin itself is addiction. Because all addiction starts with some distress. And all of us live in some kind of stress. We've got it in our past, in our present, in our future. We are always outside of the grace of Jesus Christ that we're getting to, by the way. Amen, church? Okay, because we're coming around with some good news. But before that, we are all a hair's breadth away from addiction, because all it takes is a little distress and a little distraction. A moment where we say, I don't want to deal with the, with the hurt anymore, with the frustration, with the pain, with the fear, and so I'd rather medicate it with something else. I'll distract myself. The drink helps me forget. You remember C.S. Lewis from a week ago? Until we've come to the place where perfect love can drive out our fear, God forbid that we would drive out our fear with any other substitute like drinking or indulging our passions. Because this is what we do, we choose a distraction. And we say, I would rather be numbed by this agent than face this hurt, fear, or irritation. And then once you have a distress and a distraction in place, you're already there, but it destroys your willpower because, again, sin isn't just an action, it's a power. Sin is a power, and it weakens the mind. It it takes those beautiful, full, robust emotions that God put in humanity when he gave us this image of God, and it causes them to shrivel and die till all we can think about is the craving. It destroys our willpower. You could call this tolerance. Sin is like this in general, but the little specific addictions, and hear me when I say this, the little specific addictions like alcoholism, And sexual addiction, all the ones that are the specific ones, are a little picture, a microcosm of the vast cosmic problem of sin. Sin is the macro to that micro. Because sin is something that we get more and more tolerance for. Just like the the drunk can't get satisfied by the same amount of whiskey on the 50th week of his addiction as he could on the first. Or the one engaged in pornography turns to further and further and further deeper stuff and darker stuff as they go along. Or the one who is just addicted to wealth and power will never feel the thirst quenched by making enough money and by ruling enough people. And so it is so important for you and for I to understand what uh, is like us in the story of the quail. What is the moment in which you feel your heart saying, if only, if only I had this, if only I was there, if only I did that, then I would be satisfied because this one question, what is your if only statement? This reveals the thing that's your true master. 
the thing that really has its hooks in your heart. If only, I, and haven't, haven't you ever seen somebody who was at this moment where they thought, all, if only I had a drink right now. And you've probably been there too with your little specific addiction. If only things were this way and the things you crave become your masters. But how do we get out? How do we get healed? How does the gospel help us in this cycle? How do we experience a beautiful rescue by God, an unbelievable redemption? The grace of our recovery starts with the relationship. You see, what it, what it said that the people were going to loathe the quail, what did the story say was God's reasoning? You wrote it down, you circled it. They were going to loathe the quail, it was going to come out of their noses because they had despised the Lord. God was longing for the people to know him and to love him the way he had cared for them. Do you remember it? When Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Mary, who was he reflecting? He was reflecting God in the Exodus when God said about the people, I have heard them. I've seen them. I'm coming down to be near them. I'm going to call them my sons and my daughters. I'm going to release them from the oppression. God said, I know it. I know where you're at. I know the pain. But the people rejected it. The people thought that the food could satiate them. And God said, you've rejected me. You see, the sin action isn't that they want something good to eat. The sin action is assuming that that food could do what only God can do inside of them. It's really idolatry, isn't it? It's really, at the end of the day, it's just idolatry. It's when we put something else in the place of God and we think, this will satisfy me. And God wants to renew this relationship with you. You see, he wants to be your higher power, if that's your language. He wants to be your personal God, if that's your language. He wants to be the master in your life. And I want you to look at a scripture with me. I want to read it out loud to you, and I want you to hear it. You can read it in your own Bible if you want, but I want you to hear this because what God is trying to do to you is not get you back to a religion, but to get you to himself, to a person. He wants to, he wants to rectify the place where you think this other thing will fulfill what only God can do. Stop despising the Lord and love the Lord. Look at what Paul wrote to the Galatian churches in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, church, if you can't say amen to this this morning, you've been sleeping, or you don't love the Lord, or you haven't looked outside at the sunshine or something, so can you say amen? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. Come on, right? Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by slavery. Remember, this is what the, Egypt, uh, what the Israelites did coming out of Egypt. We were set free from one kind of prison, but we've stepped into another one of our craving. And then Paul talks about the difference between religion and faith. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, that's an act of the old religion, a work, a thing you do to get yourself good with God so I'm free of him, so I can do as I will. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, it will be of no value to you at all. Every man who lets himself be circumcised, he's required to obey the whole law. And he's not talking about the modern medical purposes of good health for circumcision. He's talking about the religious act of circumcision, to believe that that sets you right with God. Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified. You see, this is what religion does. 
Not talking about faith and not talking about the gospel, just talking about religion when it itself becomes the idolatry. Look at verse 4. You are trying to be justified by the law. You think that you can replace sin actions with righteous actions and that that sets you free. But it doesn't because it doesn't solve the craving. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. See, the relationship is broken. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And those people are words of relationship. Church, faith and love are words of relationship, not of, not of religious actions, Not of sin actions, but faith and love are a choice to believe in a person. That's the moment when the heart says, instead of craving uh, 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 or instead of despising the Lord, I'm going to have faith and love in him. It's a personal relationship choice. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion, whatever that may be, will have to pay the price. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I don't expect you to walk away understanding every point in Paul's argument in Galatians 5. But if Paul was still preaching that you could be right with God by doing this action, then the offense of the cross has been abolished. Do you remember the words that we just sang a few minutes ago that Aaron let us in? I wrote them down. They stunned me. From just as I am. This isn't in the older hymnal version of the words. This is in the newer version that was written about four or five years ago. Listen to them. Just as I am, I would be lost. But mercy and grace my freedom bought. Here it is. Now to glory in your cross, O Lamb of God, I come. Why can the hymn writer say to glory in your cross? Why does Paul say that if we choose the religious action, we think we just replace our cravings with good deeds, that all it does is it abolishes the cross? Because the cross is a moment of restored relationship. The cross is where God breaks through all the power of sin and darkness and craving. And he comes crashing back into the world in the form of a resurrected man. It's when he gets to start having quality time with you again. Because now you, in Christ Jesus, resurrected in your spirit and waiting the resurrection of your body, can actually know Jesus. And instead of despising him, you can love him. It doesn't replace craving with righteous actions it replaces craving with love for jesus it is another kind of spiritual power the power of love the greatest power that the world's ever known that poets still write about the world still talks about even the people in the american system who say we want freedom and independence they also say because of love because you should give people freedom because you love them do you see it Love is the spiritual power that everyone knows, but no one knows how to find until they find it in Christ Jesus. And you don't get it just by planning the time in, do you? Who of you have ever sat down with your son or daughter to address an issue at home, you know, by saying, 
son, let's sit down from 8 to 8.30 on Tuesday night. Your mother and I really want to hear everything that's going on in your life. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Just stop doing that. Okay, you'll all be better. Good. That's just how it works. That's how you fix people, isn't it? No, of course it isn't. It takes time. It takes the rides in the car. It takes the days at the mini golf. It takes the drop-offs and pickups at school. It takes the myriad of small conversations that are a real relationship. So that in the moment when your son or your daughter is having this very acute struggle, this real deep trial in their life, this craving, that you have a relationship to say to them what you can't say if it was merely a scheduled conversation. And really, this is what we mean when we say worship. Worship of God isn't just coming on Sunday mornings and being at church for worship. Do you see how easily that can become circumcision? It becomes a religious act. I do this so God doesn't have anything over me, so I am free and I can go about living how I want because my guilt is taken care of. All that is is religion that lies to you again and says you can satisfy God through actions And the truth is you desperately need a master. The truth is you desperately need someone to worship. You need God burning in your heart. You need this person, a personal spirit who is the highest power, but also a personal friend. You need the Lord Jesus who walked around and who ate and who drank and who touched people, who looked them in the eye, who said, Mary. You need the God who knows you at your best and at your worst and who still chooses you because relationship is a choice. True freedom is not independence. True freedom is having the best master. You see, so often we think that our struggle against addiction is just, I need to choose better. And here's a great freeing truth from John Piper. You see, God has the last word. The Holy Spirit is the greatest power. We are not mere victims of our eyes and our brains. You may think that addiction controls you because you haven't made the right choices yet. I just can't stop seeing the things I've seen. I can't stop thinking, you know, alcohol's rewired my brain. I can't choose differently ever again. And John Piper says you're not just a victim of the way your brain has been shaped. You're not just a victim of what you've seen, of your hurts, of your fears. You are not a victim if you choose the highest power in the whole universe. The one who's been made the name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. He can be the one that you crave, the one that you long for, the one that you choose, the one that you can heap up Jesus around your house all day long and it will never come out of your nose. It will always come burning out of your heart in love. He's the only good master, and you must pick one. Pick him. Choose him. Lean on him. Rely on him. And pray with us today if we can help you as we stand together and sing this song of invitation.